Welcome to New Zealand Vegan Podcast, episode Lucky 13. I'm your host, Knuckles, and I have a very special guest on the show today, Professor Gary L. Francione, and I would like to introduce him to those of you who may not know um, a lot about him, and I hope that by the end of this podcast you will know a lot more. Professor Francione is a distinguished professor of law and a Nicholas de B. Katzenberg Scholar of Law and Philosophy at Rutgers University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey. He has authored several books, including Vivisection and Dissection in the Classroom, A Guide to Conscientious Objection, Animals, Property and the Law, Rain Without Thunder, The Ideology of the Animal Rights Movement, Introduction to Animal Rights, Your Child or the Dog, and the latest book from last year was Animals as Persons, Essays on the Abolition of Animal Exploitation, and I believe Professor Francione is currently working on another book, which I hope we have time to talk about. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So today I wanted to basically cover the abolition vegan philosophy, the fundamental baseline of it, um, and I think it would be really great to hear that right from from you. Um, I do try to talk about it in my show, but I'm just really glad to have you here uh, to talk about it, and um, I would like to talk about um, the philosophy of Ahimsa that, you, that we think is very important in our activism, and also about vegan abolitionist activism, which you have a lot of experience with, which I'm trying to learn how to do. Okay. Um, well, let me start off by saying that uh, ab the abolitionist approach is um, the notion that we have or represents the notion that we have no moral justification for using any animals at all. It is in distinction to the animal welfare approach, of which there are a number of different varieties, basically saying that it's all right for us to use animals as long as we treat them in a particular way. The abolitionist approach is that we have no moral justification for using animals, and we ought to abolish and not just regulate animal exploitation. So that, in a nutshell, is the, the, the abolitionist perspective. It, it basically focuses on the notion that institutions of animal exploitation cannot be justified. It, it doesn't matter uh, how we're treating them. Obviously, it is better to inflict less uh, uh, pain and suffering on animals than more. But it, it, just as it makes, you know, it, it's better to beat the slaves five times a week rather than ten times a week. But that doesn't address the fundamental morality of the institution of slavery. And even if, if we do treat animals more humanely, uh, that does not mean that we we are addressing the fundamental uh, institution of of of, uh, of animal exploitation. And by the way, I mean, I hope we get into this later on. I mean, one, I, I think that that animal exploitation cannot be justified irrespective of how well we treat the animals, but I also believe animal welfare is a, it fails and has to fail because of the economic status of animals. And so that, therefore animal welfare regulations don't do anything. Uh, but even if they did, uh, they, they, would, they would still run up uh, against the question of whether we can morally justify exploiting animals at all. Okay, and um, I get that very clearly from reading your website um, www.abolitionistapproach.com and also from listening to you do 
having done other interviews and I just would like you to um, if you would just bear with me um, down here in New Zealand um, I'm trying to um, introduce people to um, this type of um, way of looking at what I consider to be an enormous an enormously serious situation, uh, treatment of animals on this earth. And um, could you just tell us a little bit about, from the in the beginning, you were associated with certain groups and then you kind of branched off and you now have come up with this theory. And I would personally really like to know as well, how did you come up with this theory? Did you always have this? Because it's so simple and obvious, but you're the only person that I know out there, especially in, in a mainstream or in a public world that, that, that says it. Um, so in the beginning, how did the, how did this all come about? Where were you in the beginning? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I I have been in this almost thirty years, I guess twenty twenty. Well, no, about twenty six, twenty seven years. I have been doing a- activism or or advocacy or whatever you want to call it. Um, I became a vegetarian in 1978 after having visited a slaughterhouse. I stopped eating all flesh. I continued to eat uh, sea animals or aquatic animals because I didn't realize, uh, as uh, as silly as this sounds, I really didn't uh, think that fish felt pain. And so I continued to eat them until I read something about their their ability to feel pain. And actually, there's some some interesting work that's been done recently that that makes it very, very clear that crabs, lobsters, and and basically, uh, you know, all sea animals are uh, are sentient, but in any event, at that point, in you know in the late 70s, I really wasn't wasn't aware of fish sentience. And as soon as I learned about it, I stopped eating them. I continued to eat dairy. Uh, and again, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say this because I didn't think you could live without eating some animal products. I thought you needed some animal products to to um, to survive. Uh, in 1982, uh, I. Um, I was uh, I was uh, clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the uh, first uh, female uh, justice of the United States Supreme Court. I was clerking for her in Washington D.C., and uh, at the time, uh, Capitol Hill, where the Supreme Court was located, was a um, a rather economically deprived area, and there were a lot of stray uh, uh, animals running around. Often, they would be hit by cars. And I picked up this dog uh, that had been injured, and I called the Washington Humane Society. And uh, they sent over the disease control officer, whose name was Ingrid Newkirk, and uh, she uh, she and I had a conversation. And um, and uh, during the course of the conversation, I explained to her that I was a vegetarian for moral reasons. And um, that that weekend, uh, my partner Anna Charlton and I and uh, Ingrid Newkirk and Alex Pacheco uh, had dinner, and uh, they explained to us that they had just started a new group called People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Well, I had really never never been involved. I mean, I'd become a, I'd been, been uh, become a vegetarian in 1978, but I didn't really have anything to do with any any organizations, and it's, and I really wasn't aware of the. I mean, the the the, the whole concept of animal rights. I mean, there really there really was not an animal rights movement back then. I mean, you know, Singer had written Animal Liberation in 1977, I guess, thereabouts. But that, first of all, I hadn't read that book, um, and, um, and I wasn't even aware of it. I mean, I'd become a vegetarian because I'd gone to a slaughterhouse, and I thought it was disgusting. And so I met uh, Ingrid and Alex, and um, and and Ingrid uh, gave me a book to read um, uh, about uh, the whole uh, uh, process of animal exploitation, including dairy, and, um, and I Immediately, uh, Anna and I both immediately stopped, literally uh, stopped eating um, all dairy products. 
and became vegans and um, and and started working with PETA as soon as my clerkship ended uh, I, I started working with PETA and doing uh, doing a lot of their legal work and and uh, Anna and I uh, became involved with PETA when um, uh, I've heard Ingrid Newkirk describe PETA at the beginning as five people in a basement um, and uh, I guess we were two of the five people <laughs> but uh, but it's, so so we, we went back we went way back with them and so and 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 um, we worked with PETA from the early 1980s to probably 1993 94 thereabouts and during that time I was you know I was a lawyer uh, I still am a lawyer and and I was and some of the other groups that were emerging uh, at the time and and, uh, and 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 that were around and and it was a pretty small community and and I was definitely welfareist uh, Elizabeth when I first started I mean I was a I, I, I was definitely a welfareist and I believe that you know that that we should get better laws uh, to 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 protect animals and to require the more humane treatment. But what I saw pretty quickly, pretty quickly, was that those laws did. Well, first of all, it was very difficult to get them. And secondly, they would always be watered watered down. And thirdly, even when you got them, they didn't seem to do much good. And fourthly, they were always used by the other side. They were always they were always uh, animal welfare laws were always used by animal exploiters to explain to the public that animal use was really very humane and it and was very highly regulated so everybody should not be you know everybody should be should be happy to know that animals are treated humanely and kindly and and not exposed to you know suffering and things like that and so i i i saw fairly fairly quickly that um, animal welfare didn't work it had a number of problems didn't didn't provide much protection uh, and uh, and and to the extent that that it provided any protection whatsoever uh, it was uh, it was counterbalanced by the fact that it made people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation as a general matter and and as I thought about it more and more and I started doing research into the history of animal welfare regulations because you know animal welfare is a is a, a notion that we've had for a couple of hundred years now it didn't fall out of the sky last week as some animal groups would like us to believe it, it's something that we've had for 200 years and and um, and there's there's quite a bit you know that, that, that that's been written uh, uh, on it and about it and um, and so I I started doing research uh, uh, into animal welfare the animal welfare movement as it were and what I concluded was that that if you look at the history of animal welfare reform, most most of the reforms that have been enacted have, in essence, made um, animal exploitation more economically efficient. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. Animals are property. They're economic commodities. In order to protect their interests, it costs money. Uh, and because we don't believe that animals have inherent value, uh, at least as a social matter, uh, we don't believe that animals have inherent value. We're not really willing to spend that money. Uh, we're not will, we're not really willing to incur the opportunity costs that we have to incur in order to uh, 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 provide a higher level of welfare. And if you look at the at the um, history of animal welfare regulations, what you basically see uh, are regulations that make exploitation more efficient. Let me give you an example so that I can make this clear for your listeners. Uh, in 1958, in the United States we passed something called the Humane Slaughter Act. The Humane Slaughter Act required large animals, uh, large farm animals, to be stunned, electric, electrically stunned, before they were shackled, hoisted, and butchered. Uh, now, if you look at the legislative history of the Animal Welfare Act, of the, I'm sorry, of the Humane Slaughter Act of 1958, what you see is um, 
the United States Congress was concerned about the fact that uh, there there was a, 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 a there was a great there, there were a lot of worker injuries that were occurring in the meat industry. When you have a two thousand pound animal hanging upside down and she's conscious, she's kicking around, she's moving around, she's hitting into workers, she's causing worker injuries, and she's sustaining severe carcass damage. Um, the Federal Humane Slaughter Act was passed because it was the economically efficient thing to do. If an animal was stunned before before she was shackled and hoisted, that would cut down dramatically on worker injuries and carcass damage. And that's why the animal wealth that's why the uh, I'm sorry, the Humane Slaughter Act was passed in 1958 because it it was economically the sensible thing to do. It 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 actually improved uh, the productivity. It actually was an economically good thing for, for, for both the industry and for consumers. Um, so, so it was an economically efficient thing to do. And, and when I started seeing this, I thought, oh my, this is really very interesting. Animal welfare really doesn't provide much protection for animals. What it really does is it ensures that they are exploited in an economically efficient way. And you know what? Nothing has changed. If you look at the current campaign by my, my, um, my old friends at PETA, uh, trying to pressure Kentucky Fried Chicken to use controlled atmospheric uh, uh, killing rather than, you know, to ga basically gassing Gassing. chickens. Mm. Right, right. Um, that campaign is based on a great deal of data which shows that gassing chickens is much better economically for producers to do. So, so, and Pete is actually promoting it that way. I mean, they're claiming yes, it's a it's a better way, it's more humane, but it will increase your productivity. And there's no doubt that it will increase productivity. I mean, there have been a lot of studies done by uh, uh, agricultural economists which say that gassing chickens is an economically better way of killing these animals than the current way, which involves again a lot of carcass damage because the the Humane Slaughter Act of 1958 did not apply to chickens because chickens it, it, it was thought that there was really not much of a problem with carcass damage and with worker injuries because these are much smaller animals. However, there is a lot of carcass damage and there are worker injuries, not because the chickens are, 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 are bumping into people while they're moving and injuring them, but because the process, the, the slaughtering process, um, involves a lot of points at which workers are in contact with machinery um, and in the slaughtering process, this causes worker injuries and there's a great deal of carcass damage. And, and the study show that if you go to a gassing system, it's economically efficient. So this is what animal welfare is. It is a way of making the productivity of animal, making pr the production of animal products more economically efficient. And so I, I, I became, you know, quite, quite convinced that animal welfare uh, really wasn't going to provide much protection for animals. It was going to basically do nothing more than to ensure the efficient exploitation of animals and that it was a waste of time and that we really needed to be re thinking outside of the box, as it were, and thinking about how do we change, how, you know, the, how do we move away from the paradigm of animals as property? Because that's really the problem. The problem is their property. And, and, and how do we move away from that? And that's when I started formulating in the late 1980s um, the whole concept of, well, let's move. Let's, let, let's, let's try to create a vegan movement. Let's take the position that we're not really in favor of, of, of regulation. Regulation doesn't work. It's inconsistent with the theory of abolishing animal exploitation as a theoretical matter, but it's also as a practical matter ridiculous. It doesn't work. And so it fails on moral it fails on, on grounds of moral doctrine. It fails on grounds of practicality. It doesn't succeed on 
on any ground except helping animal welfare organizations to promote themselves and have campaigns and bring in zillions of dollars. That's the only thing it really does do is it makes animal organizations rich. It doesn't do anything to help the animals. It doesn't do anything to shift the paradigm. And it's inconsistent with the whole theory of animal rights being the notion that we have no justification for using animals whatsoever, irrespective of how humanely or inhumanely we treat them. And so, so you know, I, I started thinking about that in, in um, you know, towards the later later 1980s and and um, by the early 1990s I was basically uh, developing uh, uh, the, the, the theory in, in you know as, as basically the abolition versus regulation position and encountering a huge amount of, of opposition from the animal groups that's um, that leads me to another question so what I would like to know is what justification did they come up with way back then when you guys started having conflict about this and you presented this idea to them and you showed them your research and you said, hey guys, look, you know, I really think that we ought to change our tactics. What was their reason for disagreeing? Well, um, I, I think it was that um, they felt that I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to put our resources into vegan education. I took the position then, I still take the position, that we're never really going to get anywhere uh, until we have a sizable vegan movement. That we really we really do need a, veg a vegan movement. And, and I, I, I took that position and said, I really th think that we ought to put our resources, our time, our labor into vegan education. And the response was, well, but you know, we really need campaigns. We really need campaigns to energize people, and we need we need campaigns to bring people into this. And 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 veganism is is too radical, and we really won't be able to convince enough people. And really, what they were saying, Elizabeth, is it's going to interfere with our fundraising. We can get people we can get people behind campaigns to make battery cages a couple inches bigger. We can get people behind campaigns to make, you know, uh, uh, other forms of exploitation more humane. But once we start uh, talking with people about what they eat and and telling them that it, morally we really can't justify eating animal products at all or wearing them or using them in any way, once we do that, we're going to alienate them and our donor base is going to go down. Now, nobody ever said it that way, but that's really what that's really what they were saying. I mean, it's really what they were saying is we need campaigns. I mean, we need campaigns people can get behind as opposed to veganism, which people won't be able to get behind because it's going to require that they do something um, as, as, as opposed to as opposed to supporting meaningless nonsense yeah. that nobody disagrees with that nobody's really going to disagree with anyway. Um, and, you know, and, and, and also if you, if you go after, you know, many of the, of the, uh, the practices that animal welfare groups go after are, are low hanging fruit in the sense that they're already, they're practices which are already, uh, already being regarded skeptically by industry. Case in point, the, the farrowing crate with, with sows. Right. That's uh, kind of the, coming the, down here now. I could be wrong, but I think. Right. And the pork industry has been moving away from, from farrowing crates or farrowing stalls because 
they result in a lot. I mean, they, they they result in a lot of injuries to the piglets. They result in um, a lot of injury and sickness and veterinary bills on the part of you know veterinary costs on the part of the sows. It's there are alternatives which which involve relatively little capital outlay that actually increase sow productivity for example the electronic sow feeding uh device which which basically obviates the 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 need for a farrowing crate is a much more efficient way to deal with um uh the the the, the um to to deal with the problems that they try to address with the farrowing crate and farrowing saw rather and um, so industry is already in the process of sort of transitioning away from that. And what what these animal groups do is basically they they they're they're looking for vulnerable practices. They're looking for practices that are economically dubious in any event. They go after those practices. They eventually win because industries in the if if anything the irony is, I think that um, the, the some of these campaigns may actually stop. Um, industry from moving away from these practices even faster because what happens is is you know once the animal people show up and it becomes confrontational then everyone's back gets up and you start getting into you know male aggression rituals or whatever you want to call them and 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 um, and you know and so people start you know people start hardening in their positions and industry doesn't want to be seen to be capitulating to the animal people so so resistance develops and and I think in a lot of these cases um, the the campaigns by the animal people may actually uh, uh, stop those practices from being abandoned even earlier because of the political dimensions that the controversy creates. And so, so, uh, but, 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 but what ends up happening is these groups identify practices that are economically vulnerable. They go after them, and then they eventually win, and then they declare victory, and then they do fundraising, and then they bring in millions of dollars. I mean, it really is just it's a it's a racket. It's a business. Um, I mean, you know, animal and the, the business animal welfare is 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 a real business. Yeah, um, I, I I do see that. Um, I do know um, that a lot of um, people who are new, uh, perhaps discovering, you know, waking up to the concept of animal rights at whatever stage in their life, be they young or middle aged or whatever, they they look at the big groups and you know they they do have some vegan, you know, they do mention veganism in some way and they and so then they f they feel that no, they are pushing veganism. What the, the biggest one, and I'm wondering, they always seem to say, um, um, because they would, I would think they would flat out. I mean, of course, the groups would never. Well, if they 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 would. Um, a lot of people wouldn't be able to see it that way. They don't have the inside sort of way of thinking at it that you do. And so a lot of people listening to you, hear, hearing you say that, they would say, oh, no, that's impossible. They really do want veganism. They really do want abolition. They just think that you're going to get it. Um, what is it What is it that they always say, Gary? They say, we're, we're aiming towards abolition, but in the meantime, let's make yeah, things right. better. And they, that's what they always say. And these people really, you know, the people that I know, who I'm trying to talk to about this, they really care and they really, really think they're doing the right thing. And they really think that they say, well, you know, the world's not 100% vegan yet and maybe it never will be. So in the meantime, let's do what we can. And we get accused. I get accused. And I know you get accused. Why do people always think that we don't care about the animals hurting now, quote unquote? Why don't we want to help the animals now, quote unquote? And I think it's kind of deadly that the, um, that, that, that the big groups have so much influence over people's thinking that when we come along, and say, 
you know, it's really not working um, and you ought to try to educate people about vegan abolition, they say, you don't care about the animals that are hurting now. You want them to stay in their battery cages and it's all about your ideals and your ego. I've been accused of that. What do you think we can do about that? Well, I think we need some uh, some critical thinking because once we have just a small amount of critical thinking, we can see that that position is nonsense. I mean, mm. think about it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, look, what I've been saying from the big, basically from the beginning of this interview is that animal welfare doesn't work. So it's not a question of, well, you know, we're not going to have veganism tomorrow. So let's do something in the meantime, which is really going to help reduce animal suffering. I said, I, I said before, I'll say again, and I'll keep on saying animal welfare is not reducing animal suffering, not in any significant way. And to the and even to the extent that it is, it's making people feel more comfortable about consuming animals. And therefore, it's in, actually increasing animal suffering and death uh, because it, it's making – I mean, look, all you need to do is Google – um, you know, the, the the whole happy meat phenomenon. And what you will see is, you know, literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of stories about people who are no longer, uh, uh, you know, uh, a vegetarian uh, because they feel more comfortable about eating animal products again, because they're being, you know, I mean, this is a very common, this is a very, very common phenomenon. Let me tell you a story. Um, there is a chain. I don't know whether it exists in New Zealand, but it's in the United States and I think in Britain. Uh, it's called Whole Foods, and it's a big, you know, sort of it's a it's a big supermarket sort of thing. But they sell a lot of organic stuff and you know and health food sorts of items. But but it's ba it's basically like a health food store on a supermarket model. And um, when I first started shopping at Whole Foods, it was it actually had a different name then. It was called Fresh Fields. They didn't sell uh, fresh meats and and fish and things like that. Uh, uh, they sold animal products, but they they you know they were packaged you know frozen in cans and stuff like that. Okay. Now now the Whole Foods uh, markets sell a lot of fresh meat and a lot of fish, um, and I mean tons of it actually, and they make a big thing about how uh, you know their animals are humanely raised. And and I I was talking with one of their employees. This is probably going back a year, eighteen months ago. I was talking with one of their employees, saying how disgusting I thought all these corpses looked on display, and she she said to me. Yeah, but PETA gave us an award, you know. I mean, we're you know, which which is true. PETA had given Whole Foods an award for being the most animal welfare friendly retailer, and 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 the employees were aware of this, and this was actually being used by by um, uh, 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 Whole Foods to promote its its meat products that PETA gave them an award. Uh, Peter Singer, on behalf of a whole group of of organizations, wrote the the uh, CEO of Whole. Foods a letter congratulating him on being such an animal welfare friendly person. Now, as far as I know, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the animals that uh, that you buy at Whole Foods, um, you know, suffer just as much as the animals you know that you buy anyplace else. But 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 people feel better about going to Whole Foods and buying the corpses and the 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 cow mucus and other sorts of products that exist there because PETA has given them an award. PETA praises them. Peter. Singer praises them. So I think that this is a very serious problem that to the extent, you know, to the extent that animal welfare does anything, and I don't believe it does. I mean, I mean, I mean, really, give me an example of an animal welfare reform that has had anything, you know, any sort of significant impact on reducing animal suffering. I'd like to know one. I would like just one, an example of one measure that, that 
does not fit the model I've described as being basically resulting in economically efficient exploitation and would have been adopted by industry eventually anyway. Um, and 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 that that goes beyond efficient exploitation and actually provides benefits, significant welfare benefits for animals. I'd like one example. And you know what? I'll let you go back two hundred years. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and you know you can have, you can have two hundred years. Give me one example of something. Um, uh, you know that 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 goes against what I'm saying. And I but I, so so it seems to me that um, if you look at the evidence. Um, if you look rationally at the evidence, what you see is people feeling more comfortable about animal exploitation. So I don't think any of this works. Now, you, you raised two other issues before in your question. One was this notion that, that well, animal people are always saying, yeah, it's not going to end tomorrow, so we want abolition, but we're going uh, to pursue regulation in the meantime. Well, that's nonsense. I wrote a book about that in 1996 called Rain Without Thunder. That's when I discussed what I uh, called then the, 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 the new welfare movement, basically, the idea that, well, we're going to get to abolition by by um, by by pursuing welfare, you know, we're going to get to the end of abolition by pursuing welfarist means. There is no evidence, not any evidence in the history of humankind, that regulation of exploitation leads to abolition. It doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, regulation generally leads to more exploitation. We've had animal welfare for 200 years. We're exploiting more animals now than ever before in human history. There is no reason to believe that regulation is going to lead to abolition. I also want to say something about the notion that animal people are are uh, maintaining that regulation will get us to abolition. I, I, I think that that was certainly the view of some of the groups in the mid-1990s, they were saying that um, animal welfare would get us to abolition, which is, as I just said, nonsense. But I think actually things have become even more reactionary in the past 10, 12 years in that I don't even think that many of these groups see abolition as necessarily as the desirable endpoint. Most of these groups are very, very much influenced by Peter Singer. Peter Singer's view, which is the classical welfarist view, is that there is nothing per se problematic about using animals. Um, the, 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 the classical welfarist view, which goes back a couple hundred years ago, but is, is the position Peter Singer takes basically today, is that animals don't care. You know, they can suffer, but they're different from us in that they don't have a sense of themselves. They're not self-aware. They don't have an interest in continuing to live. They don't have a sense of their lives, and therefore they don't care that we use them. They only care about how we use them. And so um, that's why Peter Singer talks about being a conscientious omnivore is a morally acceptable situation. He talks about the fact that we, you know, that 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 if we cut down suffering, if we if we reduce suffering, we might allow ourselves. He, he uses the expression the luxury of of occasionally eating meat from humanely raised animals. I think that a lot of these a lot of these uh, people uh, don't really see abolition as the as the desirable. Uh, endpoint. So to say that, well, animal people are saying that they're going to use regulation to get to abolition. I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think that a lot of them see abolition as as necessarily see abolition as the um, as the desirable endpoint. They see reduction of suffering. That that's what you sort of unites the modern movement, at least in two thousand nine, is that they they want to see a reduction in suffering. But again. 
I don't think that's going to happen in any significant way because of the the prop the status of animals as property and the economic realities. I mean, also, you know, look, Elizabeth, I don't want to I don't want to. I, I don't want to bore your your listeners with um, a lot of economic theory or whatever, but but the reality is we're living in a world. I mean, we have these, we have things like the, the European Economic Community. We have things like NAFTA, like GATT, like all of these 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 free trade arrangements. And in many situations, you're not even permitted. I mean, for example, um, to the extent that animal welfare regulations are more stringent in Britain because they are more stringent in Britain in certain respects. I, I don't know that, that it makes a, a lot of difference, but they're, they're certainly more stringent on than they paper? are in other parts. Of, on well, paper? On, paper, on paper, they're more stringent, yeah. and they may, involve, um, they may involve some higher costs for producers. Um, and to the extent, however, that the demand is still there um, for the lower price products, Britain cannot stop the import of lower welfare products from Germany and France because under the terms of the economic of the European economic community, one nation cannot stop the stop imports coming in from another nation on on grounds of morality. Um, similarly, under the North American free trade arrangements, under the you know the general agreement on trades and tariffs, basically one nation cannot stop. Um, you know, cannot cannot prohibit the import of something based on moral concerns. They can stop imports based on on safety and health concerns and things like that, but they cannot stop imports based on more on concerns of morality. So so even if you were to have in in country X, you were to have animal welfare regulation that 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 actually did. Um, add significantly to the cost of an, of 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 of, of uh, production. If the demand were still there, which it will be, if you don't change people's attitudes, the demand's still going to be there. The lower welfare products are going to come in, and you can't stop them from coming in. So, so you know, I mean, it, it, you've got to, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I had a debate with a fellow uh, from Austria who was telling me that all oh, things were wonderful in Austria because they got rid of um, uh, of conventional batteries there. Well, they got rid of conventional batteries there, but egg production uh, and egg, you know, I mean, the, to the extent, that, I mean, they're importing eggs and egg production hasn't gone down in Austria. So it's not, it's, it, you know, it's not it, helping it, it, the hands. It's not. It's not. It's not helping anything. I mean, so. So I don't. I mean, another case in point was Austria apparently got rid of fur farms, but the demand for fur hasn't gone down in Austria. I mean, the same number of furs are being purchased. They're just being purchased from places like Korea and places, you know, other places like China, where there may, you know, where where the animals are treated every bit as badly as they ever were treated in 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 in, in Austria. So, I mean, you know, the demand is there. So the so the product's going to come in. So I, I think it's really very important to sort of, you know. Um, we keep hearing from animal welfare people that, well, we're not going to stop it you know, tomorrow, so therefore we've got to do something to help the animals that are suffering today. And the answer is animal welfare is not helping them today. It's not helping them today. Yeah, I, I put that as a challenge to anybody listening to this because I did say that to um, – ha- I had a really good – I had a debate with, with, with a good friend of mine. We do disagree. And, he, you know, he said, you know, animal welfare has made huge strides. And I said, name one. And, and and I didn't get a response, and I can't think of any either. And I've seen um, a video of, of hens that were rescued from a cage-free facility in America, and it was absolutely horrific. And I just think it's common sense. See, the thing that gets me is, I mean, the reason I asked you that question is because I'm 
I know that I'm going to encounter it. I've already encountered that question. And I don't understand where the question comes from because it's common sense to me. So I'm just, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the, um, I would say, pro propaganda that is being used. And, um, and if you want to look for veganism on the PETA website or on the other websites, you can find it. They say, yeah, you know, this, this food is vegan and veganism's great and everything. But if you're not telling the general public that that's the way to take animal rights seriously, they're not even going to be looking at that page. The vegans are going to look on that page and say, yeah, we're doing a good thing. You know, Peter's supporting veganism. But other people who are giving them money are, are saying, yeah, we're doing a great thing because, you know, we're helping getting the sows into bigger cages. And, and so now we can eat, eat. I mean, I don't understand how they think that if you promote. Well, look, Elizabeth, it's a, it's a matter of economics. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, an interview with Dan Matthews, who's one of the Peter vice presidents. And Dan said that half of the PETA members were vegetarian and the other half thought it was a good idea. Basically, half of the PETA membership is not even vegan. vegetarian, let alone vegan. I mean, I mean, half of them are vegetarian. I don't know what that means, though. I mean, vegetarian can mean – vegetarian has yeah. lost its meaning. Yes. I mean, you know, I think vegetarian ought to mean you eat plant foods. Um, yes. but, but, you know, there are vegetarians who eat fish. There are vegetarians who eat eggs. There are vegetarians who eat dairy. I was um, one of them. I was one yeah, of them. exactly. So, 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 I mean, you know, uh, I'd like to reclaim the word, and I think we should use it in its proper meaning. Um, uh, but, but, you know, nevertheless, the reality is vegetarianism means, uh, you know, it can mean anything from, you know, people who don't eat beef a lot uh, consider themselves vegetarians, but they eat everything else. So, so um, but, but Dan said half of the PETA membership was vegetarian, which means basically, Half of them are are omnivores of various sorts, but have some dietary restrictions, and the other half don't have any dietary restrictions. So that tells you a lot. That tells you that PETA has got a membership which is largely not vegan, yeah. and 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 it doesn't want to do anything to affect its donor base. What PETA wants to do is it wants the people who are eating at McDonald's uh, to be able to feel like animal rights activists and write their checks to PETA. So you know that so. That that's you know they have these they have these campaigns where they praise McDonald's there they praise Kentucky Fried Chicken in Canada because they're gassing the chickens and what you know whatever what, 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 but what they want what they want is they want people who are eating at McDonald's who are eating at Kentucky Fried Chicken who are omnivores they want those people to feel comfortable about giving money I've known these people I've worked with them over the years and it's not that I think that they're bad people it's I just think that they're wrong. And so I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm not, I don't want to yep. get into I mean, it's, it's not what this is about. I just no. think that they're wrong. And I think that they are blinded by the fact that they are basically in a business where, where doing the right thing is unfortunately inconsistent with what they perceive as maximizing their revenues. I mean, if PETA starts taking a very hard vegan position – then it's going to have an effect on their donor base. Um, it, you know, HSUS is basically an organization. The Maine Society of the United States is basically an organization that brings in most of its money from people who are not even vegetarians. They're people who like dogs and cats. Yeah. So yeah. who fetishize dogs and cats? So 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 HSUS, you know, has has got to be careful about what it says because it will affect its donor base. So, but these are basically businesses. Yeah, I, and um. I, I and I, I, you know, that's what I try to, um, you know, I don't have the sort of expertise or the legal legalese to be able to do it, but it makes perfect sense to me. And so, if it makes sense to me, I know it can make sense to other people, which is why, you know, I don't even bother to. What I try to do is just talk to people about um, veganism. 
just the way That's what I, I was talked to about veganism by you. So um, I just hope that everybody listening um, understands what you know what we what you're saying when you're talking about these these big businesses and we know it comes from the right place they think they're they want to help animals they think they're doing the right thing we just disagree oh, I disagree you disagree Gary. I disagree because I listened to you and it made sense to me so um, I hope that everybody but, understands but Elizabeth that. It, but Elizabeth the one the one thing I think it's important to focus on though is that it's not just a matter of opinion I mean if 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 I'm wrong about this if I'm wrong about the fact that animal welfare reform isn't doing anything if I'm wrong uh, about the fact that animal welfare regulation is simply making exploitation more efficient. It's actually in the interests of producers. It's not hurting producers. It's actually helping producers. If I'm wrong about the fact that animal welfare is is making people feel better about consuming animals, then let's get these people then let's get these people to come forward and say, in what ways am I wrong? You know, I mean, I would love to debate them. I, okay. I, uh, uh, I, I can tell you this. Um, uh, a professor from another university tried to set up a debate on these issues between me and Peter Singer. Singer wouldn't do it. Um, uh, when, when California was promoting Proposition 2, when you know, the Proposition 2 was being promoted in California, that was, a, that was a, 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 a ballot measure in California that we had at the most recent election, uh, which will become effective in 2015. If, if it ever becomes effective, it will become effective in 2015, uh, and it will supposedly help reduce some of the suffering of farm animals. And I basically came out against Proposition 2 as a very, very wrong-headed idea, and I debate, I invited um, Wayne Passell to, uh, to debate me, and he initially accepted and then declined. So my view is if I'm wrong about these things, I would love to have a discussion with my former colleagues about these issues. Uh, there's no reason why we can't discuss. If I'm wrong, I'd like somebody to show me or prove to me that I'm wrong. So it's not just a matter of an opinion. It's a matter of I'm looking at the data and I am concluding animal welfare reform simply doesn't work. And if anything, it makes matters worse because it makes people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation. I agree with you. What we need to do is focus on vegan education. And indeed, I don't even spend all that much time talking to animal welfare people anymore because no. it's it's you know you just run up against you know it's very animal well the animal welfare movement is is a bit is, is you know it's a combination of big business and a cult um, if you if you if you you know if you criticize the the received wisdom that you know oh we've got to you know we've got to pursue animal welfare reform because we've got to help the animals that are suffering today if you if you do anything which disputes that mantra, people get very angry with you. They call you names. They claim you're this. They claim you're that. They claim you don't care about animals. They say all sorts of nasty, horrible, rotten things about you. Um, and and I have to tell you something. I've been doing this work for what going on 30 years now, and I've I've been criticized by vivisectors, factory farmers, uh, furriers, and everybody else. But the people who have said the worst things about me, and the people who have said the most scurrilously untrue things about me, are animal welfare people who disagree with what I'm saying. So so if you if you dispute what they're saying, they get upset with you, they they attack you. Um, and you know, but it, so it's partly cult and it's partly business. And so in a sense, you're going up against um, two very um, uh, 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 important uh, impulses. One is the, the, the dogmatic religious impulse, which is manifested in the cult aspect, and the other is the capitalist impulse, which is manifested in the business end of it. And so you end up just butting your head against the wall. What I like to do is I like to go and I like, I like to do you know, radio shows and, and, and talk in universities to, 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 to people and to other groups, you know, to other, you know, other, other civic groups about veganism. 
without getting it, you know, without sort of, uh, uh, you know, with bypassing, let the animal welfare people do what they want to do. They want to, you know, they want to, you know, pursue gassing chickens. If that's what they think they're, you know, if that's what they think it's about, let them go and do gassing chickens. Let them go, you know, you know, go naked rather than wear fur and all any of that other nonsense. If that's what they want to do, let them do it. Yeah. Uh, my view is, is let's educate people about veganism. And I do this every day of my life. And I'm telling you something, it's effective and it works. Yes, I agree. And so, um, as um, could, do you have any advice? Um, uh, I'm new to this, and I just started doing this podcast, basically, and I and I talk to people, and one of the reasons I try to do the podcast is because I'm trying to learn how to speak about the issue. I'm trying to learn how to present a logical, coherent um, spread of an idea, a, philosoph- a philosophy, I think it is. I mean, I don't know what to call it, but, you know, abolitionist veganism is just, we're trying to educate, the, abolishing animal use has one thing, and that's veganism, because that's what veganism is. So do you have advice for people who are starting out debating? I'm scared of uh, turning people off by, I'm trying to learn how to talk to people about it, um, and I'm a new vegan. So, um, I mean, any tips? I mean, that you don't have to. Sure, uh, sure. I mean, I mean, look, that's what my website's about, um, www.abolitionistapproach.com. What what we what, what we try to do with that website? I mean, we we've got a pamphlet which is available in in I got 10, 11, 12 different languages. Yeah. Um, we've got we've got um, uh, video presentations, these flash presentations on the theory of animal rights and animal rights versus animal welfare and the theory of animals as property, and and um, and there are uh, radio interviews and 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 whatnot that I've done. There are and then I have a blog section where I've got various essays and and uh, there's an FAQ section. So the the whole point of my website is to provide this sort of educational background. And the, the, sort of an educational resource to help people do exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And you know, look, you don't need you don't need to uh, uh, to know a whole lot of philosophy or to know. I mean, you, you know, like, like most things, Elizabeth, um, yeah. most truth, most things that are true are really sort of simple. And <laughs> and uh, and you don't you don't need um, to obfuscate things or complicate things because, in essence, the message is pretty simple. And you know, I, let me let me let me give you an example of how I approach this when I'm talking to a group of people okay. uh, in a, in a sort of a general public setting. Yeah. I will start off my lecture by saying. Um, how many of you all uh, uh, have had uh, companion animals in your lives that you've had relationships with? And, you know, everybody's hand goes up and, you know, and, and I ask questions, you know, what do you, you know, oh, I've got a dog or my cat. And they tell, you know, they tell you these stories about how much they love their dog and they love their cat. And and then I after I sort of get people talking for a few minutes about about the relationships they've had with their animals, I say, by the way, I said, how many of y'all eat meat in this room? And everyone's hand goes up. And then I say, okay, I'm confused, people. I'm confused. You got to help me understand this. What's the difference between the dog who's a member of your family and the pig you're sticking the fork into? I don't understand. Can somebody explain that to me? And then, you know, that's one way of getting into it. And then that will get people really focused on the moral schizophrenia that we have when we approach this whole issue. Uh, another another way that I that I start off the discussion is to say, um, look, uh, how many of y'all, uh, you know, uh, agree with the proposition that it's wrong to inflict on necessary suffering and death on animals and everybody raises his or her hand because nobody 
disagrees with that. Everybody yeah. agrees with that proposition. And so then I say, okay, well, fine. Um, you know, we could we could have an interesting philosophical discussion about what necessity means, uh, or else instead of boring ourselves silly with such a discussion, we could agree, can't we, that um, if if a prohibition on inflicting unnecessary suffering and death means anything, it means that we can't inflict pain, suffering, and death for reasons of pleasure, amusement, or convenience. And everybody agrees with that. And then I say, okay, fine. Somebody want to tell me what the justification is for eating meat because the best justification we have for killing 53 billion animals every year, not including aquatic animals where there are billions and billions more, is that they taste good. We inflict horrendous pain, suffering, and death on billions and billions and billions of animals every year for reasons of pleasure, amusement, or convenience. When most of us, virtually all of us agree that that does not suffice as a moral justification. We don't think clearly about this. I believe that the seeds are already planted in most people. I really think that most people already accept the basic premises. They just haven't thought clearly through the problem because we live in a society where because their property as a legal matter, we're permitted to do things with them. And we don't really sort of think we don't really think about the moral schizophrenia that we have when we approach the issue. And so what I try to get people to do is to sort of focus on simple ideas. The 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 the, the inconsistency between loving your dog and eating a cow. The 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 in the you know the inconsistency between saying I agree it's wrong to inflict unnecessary pain, suffering, and death on animals, but gee whiz, you know my leather shoes look I, great. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or I, you know, I, I'll give you. Let me give you an example of something that had a tremendous effect. Uh, two years ago, there was a, a an American football player named Michael Vick, and he was he was uh, prosecuted for he had a dog. You know, he was fight. He was uh, he was engaging in dog fighting, and um, and he was uh, uh, and he was prosecuted primarily because he was there was betting, there was gambling going on and and that sort of stuff. But, you know, so it wasn't just the dog fighting; it was gambling and 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 other sorts of other 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 legal problems that were connected with the dog fighting. But anyway, it, it became a big issue here about Michael Vick and and the dog the dog fighting, and and uh, and I was just tired of hearing about Michael Vick and his and his dog fighting because. I saw it as really um, – I mean Michael Vick is a man of color, and, and I, w- I was wondering whether or not there was some element – You know, part, part of it is he's a big sports – he's a sports celebrity. Part of it is he's a black man, and, 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 you know, and I was thinking, you know, gee whiz, I wonder, you know, um, I wonder if this is a repetition of the O.J. Simpson phenomenon. I mean plenty of white guys murder their wives. They do it all the time, uh, but a, bla- a black guy murders a blonde woman. Uh, or is accused of murdering a blonde woman, and all of a sudden it becomes a you know we 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 get we get all worked up over it, and it becomes something special. And so I really wasn't sure what was going on sociologically with Michael Vick, but the one thing was clear uh, uh, I was clear about was that um, was that we we were not thinking clearly about Michael Vick. So I wrote an editorial that was published in a major American newspaper called "We're All Michael Vick," in which I argued that there was no difference between Michael Vick, who likes to sit around uh, a pit and watch dogs fight, and the rest of us who like to sit around our barbecue pits roasting animals that are tortured every bit as much as Michael Vick's dogs. Indeed, Michael Vick's dogs probably had a better life than the cow, the pig, the chicken, or the fish that you you know ate last yeah. night for dinner, yeah. and so. 
so you know Michael Vick likes he, he Michael Vick is entertained by sitting around watching dogs fight. We are entertained by eating their flesh or eating products made from them. But basically, it's a matter of pleasure. It's a matter of entertainment. It, it, there is no necessity. Nobody needs to eat animal products to lead an optimally healthy lifestyle. Indeed, animal products are probably killing us, and there are certainly an ecological. I mean, animal agriculture is an ecological disaster. There is no good art. The uh, the best argument we have for for killing and eating 53 billion animals a year, which is just an extraordinary number of animals and doesn't even count the, the sea animals, the, the aquatic animals, is, is that they taste good. So frankly, you know, and, and I don't really see the difference between those of us who eat animal products and those of us who engage in dogfighting. To me, it's all the same. And so I published this editorial and it it got an enormous response, Elizabeth. I mean, really? I, can, I can tell you that I got over a thousand emails. I got over a thousand emails in a relatively short period of time from people all over the world who read that and said, my God, you know, I mean, a lot of people were very angry with me about it. And they said, you know, I don't want to be compared to a guy who fights dogs. I'm a really good person. And, you know, just because I eat meat doesn't mean I'm a bad guy like a guy who fights dogs. And obviously such people miss the whole point of my editorial. Yeah. But I had a lot of I had a lot of people write to me, say, you know, I never looked at it that way before. Yeah. I never saw, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, you've just got to realize that um, there are a lot of ways in which we can educate people. And it doesn't require that you have a PhD in philosophy. It doesn't require that you have, you know, that you be, uh, you know, a university professor. It just requires that you have some common sense and that you're willing. You know, one thing that I find troubling is the number of times I've had people say to me, animal people say to me, gee, I read something that you wrote and you said Peter Singer isn't in favor of animal rights. And gee, you know, is that right? And I, I say to them, go and read what Peter Singer writes. He very explicitly says he doesn't endorse animal rights. He very explicitly says he doesn't believe in rights as a general matter for humans or animals. And 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 the pro part of the problem is, is that um, – Many of us are not willing to sit down. I mean, I'm not saying that you have to sit down and engage complex philosophical treatises, but you know, you do have to sort of learn a little bit. And <laughs> and and you know, um, the, the 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 that's that's one of the reasons why I created the website was to try to give people small doses of theory in comprehensible ways so that they could do it in the way that people now learn. They don't read books anymore. They interact with the computers and the internet yeah. and whatnot. And so I, 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 you know, Anna and I designed this to try to sort of um, create an educational resource that would allow people to sort of have um, uh, uh, easy, digestible, uh, short things to read um, and to, to you know and to, and to to learn so that they could help educate others and so you need to be disciplined at least to the extent that if you really care about this issue you need to educate yourself a little bit you don't need to learn German you don't need to read you know Immanuel Kant you don't need to you know learn a whole lot of philosophical uh, uh, material you do you do need to, to, to be willing to learn enough so that you can have intelligent discussions with people. And, and if you don't care enough to, to spend the time to do that, then I would question how much you really, you know, how sincere you really are and how much you really care about the issue. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, um, I try to point people to your website and, um, that's my favorite website. And, um, you know, a lot of the things I say, I just feel like I'm passing on. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've, 
I understand completely the point and I try to help other people understand the point and I always say if I can do it anybody can do it um, if I can go from eating meat and wearing leather less than two years ago I didn't eat well I ate fish so there you go and and come to this point where I'm just actively spending as much time as possible talking to almost complete strangers about it you know anybody's capable of doing it and that's why I do get a little upset when people say oh it's too much people aren't ready um, and things like that um, I think a lot of the moral schizophrenia comes from when you're a child and your family um, says don't kick the dog the dog is lovely look go and give him a cuddle he, you just hurt his feelings and then says right now come and sit down and eat your steak it's good for you and this is your loving family and so um, it's a lot of conditioning I think and people find it hard to re to, to I think it's almost embedded in our in us as a non don't even think about the issue because because from a very young age we were taught you don't care about the do the cow or the sheep you don't care about them you care about dogs you care about cats I mean obviously people who torture dogs and cats don't so I feel like it's a lifetime of unlearning that we have to be up against when we're trying to talk to somebody out of the blue who's never even heard the word vegan I mean I have a friend who you know um it's been, I've been talking to him for ten months now and they had a vegan meal the other night and he said we had a vegan meal and you know and I felt so touched that he came to me and told me that he knows how much it means to me he hasn't stopped eating meat but he told me if before I met you I never even thought about this and I never even heard the word vegan so well you know I think it's important you know part of what one of the things that really troubles me about the modern animal movement is mm. as you as you pointed out before you know they'll put they'll mention veganism on their websites but yeah. but you know they they don't i mean they portray it the animal movement portrays veganism as you know something only the strongest can do and you know it's <laughs> yeah. it's it's sort of like you know the the you know the 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 uh, you know the the super women and supermen of the movement <laughs> They're the ones who become vegans. Well, that's nonsense. It's yeah. easy to – let me tell you something. When I became a vegan 26 years ago, it was a lot harder. Um, and I remember the first time I had uh, non-dairy ice cream, I vomited. It was <sighs> dreadful. I mean it was, it was horrible. Now, I mean, you know, um, I, I mean the, the range – the well, first of all, I mean to be a, a healthy vegan, all you need are fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Exactly. You can just, you get that just about any <laughs> planet. And, and, uh, but even if you like processed foods, which you shouldn't be eating anyway because they're not good for your health, but if you want processed foods, there's tons of them out there. And there's all yeah. these really great soy ice creams and, 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 you know, um, uh, I, I, you know, and I just, I just had a wonderful cup of tea that had soy milk in it. And I yeah. have to tell you something. Um, I, I can't, I, it's been 26 years since I've had milk. And so I don't really remember what it tastes like, but, um, but I, I, the cup of tea I just had was delicious. And, and, um, and so I think that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're not really even sacrificing anything anymore. Not at all. Um, it really is. And, 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 you know, it's easy to be, it's in, in, and, and let me tell you something. I mean, I don't do it for health reasons, but yeah. I have low cholesterol. I have low blood pressure. I am. I don't remember the last time I had a cold or a virus. Um, I'm in my mid fifties now, and I have as much, if not more, energy than most of my students who are young enough to be my children, and shortly will be young enough to be my grandchildren. And so, um, you know, I mean, and I'm not. I mean, you know, you, you know, it, it's it's um, I, this uh, this uh, semester, Anna and I are are teaching 
um, 70 students. We, we have a course called Human Rights and Animal Rights, and we have 70 students. We have two sections of it, and we have 70 students between the two sections. And and um, and it's it's really interesting because I'm always saying to them, you know, you're, you're you know, I, how are you doing? Oh, we're really tired, Professor Francis. And I say, tired, <laughs> tired. What are you talking about? You're 24 years old, tired. And well, I only got seven hours of sleep last night. And I said, gee, that's funny. I only get four hours a night, and you know, and I and and uh, and and they're they're sort of amazed at my energy, but that I I. I think that comes from the veganism. I, I, I can't prove it, but I can tell you this, that, um, that, that everybody in my family, you know, they have problems with cholesterol. They have problems with blood, blood pressure and things yeah. like that. I don't. So my genes, uh, to the extent that I have genes, uh, that, that are problematic, they're not expressing themselves. Uh, and I, I think that that has to do with my, uh, with my vegan diet and my whole food diet. I agree. I think it is a perk. I mean, we're lucky that it's that way. But I, I do also say that, you know, even if it was the same amount of health, even if it was the same impact, say they were sure. 50-50, I would still be vegan for the ethical reason. And that's what I try to tell people. And I just say, you're gonna, you're lucky because not only is it, is it, is it moral and not only will you be fulfilling your – because I, I, I love the one when you say, do you think it's wrong to inflict unnecessary suffering – and um, and then I use that one. I mean, that's my favorite one because nobody's going to say, yeah, I think it's fine to inflict unnecessary suffering. Nobody says that. So you can catch them unawares and get them thinking. It gets them thinking more than saying something almost equivalent like, um, well, animals have feelings or something like that. You know, if you get to the fundamental issue. But also it's a perk. Not only are you doing that, but you really it is extremely healthy. And I think that that's a bonus. And we're lucky that it's a bonus. But even if it wasn't healthy, obviously we would both be vegan. Well, I certainly would and I know you would. Even if oh, it was... look, let me, let, let me say this. If it were, even if, I agree with you that if it were equally as healthy to be a vegan and a non-vegan, it would be morally better to be a vegan. But I would take – I would go further. And I, I, I mean I'm, I just want to be honest about it. If it were less healthy for me to be a vegan, I'd still be a vegan because <laughs> I do not I, – but, but, but I don't have to confront that because the reality yeah, is we're lucky. that um, – that I am not um, suffering any health effects. Uh, you know, I, I, I frequently hear people say to me, well, you know, a vegan diet can't be good because you need to supplement it with B12. And I always say to them, look, w both of us have to supplement our diet with B12. You yeah. supplement your diet by eating meat with B12. I supplement my diet by eating yeast, um, you know, which I actually love. I love I, – I cook with yeast. Um, I put yeast on – I mean I love nutritional yeast. I sprinkle it on salads. I use it in soups and things like that. But I mean both both the meat eater and the, and the vegan have to supplement their diets with B12. The only question is what you supplement your – how you supplement your diet with B12, whether you supplement your diet with meat or whether you supplement your diet with with um, with with yeast or other you know or or whatever whatever you you use, um, and so you're always in the position of having to supplement your diet on B12. But the, the idea that well veganism can't be natural because you have to supplement it with B12. The answer is it's no less natural than supplementing your diet by eating rotting flesh, yeah. um, which you do get your B12. You know if you're a meat eater. Yeah, yeah. I I actually quoted one of your articles on that, and I didn't know that nutritional yeast had B12. So I I learned something from that. I, I'm taking these little little tablets. But, you know, I mean, in New Zealand, there's no iodine in the soil just because of the yeah. way the soil's farmed. And we need to um, to possibly, we, we have to be careful of that. But does that mean everybody has to stop living in New Zealand? <laughs> no. We just know Look, that. Look, I mean, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Okay, thanks for listening. That was part one uh, of the interview with Gary. Uh, we're going to have part two on a separate file just because it's a, otherwise it's going to be a big file. I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview and please tune in for part two. And if you have any comments or questions or anything to do with this, uh, this, these interviews, please email me. Uh, it's nzveganpodcast at me.com. And the blog site is nzveganpodcast.blogspot.com. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Professor Gary Francia. Bye.